Alex, Lizzie, David, Janet, Carrie for leading us in worship this excellent this morning. Vocals was on point today. That was fun. Man, I'm excited about today. Uh, just as a, just a press release, uh, I guess Carrie and I were talking this week, and I was telling him that you know I had planned originally to do all of uh, the temptations of Jesus in one message, but I really felt that the Lord was telling me to slow down and just kind of make our way through that. And he's like, yeah, let's slow down a little bit. And I was like, wait, what? And Craig was standing there, Craig Glass. I was like, Craig, you heard that, right? Carrie said, slow down. And he said, yeah. And I said, all right. So I, I just like to pick fun at Carrie because he makes fun of me because how long it takes us to get through a book. But joke's going to be on him today, I think. Uh, I'm excited. Last week, we, we went back, uh, speaking of slowing down, and dug a bit deeper into the baptism of Jesus. And we learned about how quickly we forget about the things that God does in our lives. Um, while the birth narrative and the baptism of Jesus were re are really close to one another in a Bible, there was actually 30 years that happened. And, and I kind of drew the point that we forget about things that happened 30 years, or at least the details get real fuzzy. And that had to be the case for the people that were alive during Jesus' time. That was a, a lot of time. And based on the rest of biblical history and our own history, we know that people very likely forgot all of the amazing things that God had done at the birth of Jesus. And so God is kind of re-introducing uh, re, um, Jesus to the world through the baptism where the heavens opened up and God speaks and says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And the spirit descends like a dove on Jesus. And so it's this really, really meaningful moment. I talked about it being a paradigm shifting moment where everything in the world is changing at that, at that moment when the Holy Spirit comes down on Jesus. And so today we're going to pick up on the heels of that passage and we're going to look at the next thing that Jesus does. But, and we're going to look today at, at Luke chapter 4 verses 1 through 4. But before we do this, I want to take a look at a passage from Isaiah because I want us to remember, I want to put ourselves in the mindset of who God said the Messiah was going to be. Because when we think about the people that were originally experiencing this story, this prophecy from the prophet Isaiah is going to be one of the things that's ringing in their mind because they're looking at this guy who this voice just said was the Son of God. This was the Messiah. And so I want us to kind of be in that mindset. So look with me uh, at Isaiah chapter 11. We're going to read verses 1 through 9. And just as a heads up, we'll be in Luke chapter 4 today, but we're also going to look at Exodus chapter 16, some excerpts from there, picking up on the hills of where we left off last week, talking about uh, Israel's experience in the wilderness. So if you got your Bible with you, you can kind of thumb, uh, put your finger in those places. But let's start with Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Isaiah said, Then a shoot will grow up from the stump of Jesse, and a branch of his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on, on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears. But he will judge the poor righteously and execute justice for the oppressed of the land. He will strike the land with a scepter from his mouth, and he will kill the wicked with a command from his lips. Righteousness will be a belt around his hips. Faithfulness will be a belt around his waist. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will die, lie down with the goat. The calf, the young lion, the fattened calf will be together, and a child will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze, their young ones will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like cattle. An infant will play beside the cobra's pit, and a toddler will put his hand into the snake's den. Then they will not harm or destroy each other on my entire holy mountain, for the land will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. 
This has got to be exciting for Israel. Think about the cultural context, the historical context that they're living in, that they've been oppressed for generation after generation after generation. They finally, they've come back to the homeland. They rebuilt the temple, and that was a huge deal for the nation of Israel. And then here comes Rome, and they conquer them, and now they're living. I know I keep bringing this up, but it's so important for us to understand the mindset of the people, the mindset of what is happening in the context of this. And then to finally hear that all this is coming past and they're remembering these prophecies like Isaiah where all of these things that have been so horrible for their whole lives, this is all about to end. God's going to flip the whole world upside down for his sake, for his glory. But before all of that can begin, Jesus has got to be vetted right? He's got to prove who he is. Uh, this week, um, you guys know I've been talking a lot about um, I'm working a job at Super One. We're rebuilding the gas station. And when you build a gas station, one of the final steps in the whole process is you have a third-party company comes in that tests all of the work that you're done. They want to make sure that the gas tank doesn't have any leaks in it. That would be important, right? They want to make sure the piping that the gas flows through doesn't have any leaks. They want to make sure that all the safety features that are involved in a gas station there's hundreds of them all of those things are working properly to keep the environment safe but also to keep the people who are pumping their gas safe right and so this week that has been on my mind is are all of the things working we're vetting all of this work that we're done to make sure that it's done properly if any of these com components fail like we got to fix that immediately because we're opening tomorrow morning it's a big deal right in our passage today as we look at the temptation of Jesus, I want us to understand that this is his proving ground. This is where he's vetted. This is where he does the thing that no other human being that has ever lived has ever been able to do. This is how we know that Jesus is the Messiah. This is how the people that lived at that time know that he is the Messiah. This is Jesus' moment of verification. If he fails any of these tests, he cannot be the Messiah. And his ability to overcome temptation is what makes him different from any other man. And it is the basis of his ability to forgive our sins, to be the spotless lamb, to be the sacrifice that is needed for us to be reunited with God. So Jesus is about to show that he can do what no, no other human's done before. We're going to look back, and we're going to look at his first temptation today, and then we'll address the other two in later messages. So look with me at Luke chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 4, and then we'll, we'll tear that thing apart. So starting in verse 1. Then Jesus left the Jordan. Remember, he was just baptized. Jesus left the Jordan full of the Holy Spirit and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. For 40 days to be tempted by the devil, he ate nothing during those days. And when they were over, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, it is written, man must not live on bread alone. Okay, there is, it may not seem like it at first, but there is so much here. And here's three things I want us to see today. Number one is that Jesus is led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about that uh, and what that means. Number two, the amount of time that Jesus spent fasting was intentional. And then number three, that we are reminded that God is our greatest need. That's where I want us to land today is to see that. In the story of Jesus' temptation, there's some very intentional references to specific moments in the story of God's people. I decided to slow down our progression so that we could take time to really fully digest these connections that God is making through this temptation process and that Luke wants us to see. As we move through each of these temptations, I'm going to call out and we're going to discuss what God is doing through Jesus in each one of them. So let's start with verse 1. 
It says, then Jesus left the Jordan full of the Holy Spirit and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So point number one today is that Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. It's so important that we see that God initiated this process. Jesus was not duped into going into the wilderness. Satan didn't trick him and bring him into the wilderness so that he can tempt him. The Holy Spirit told Jesus to go into the wilderness to face these temptations. The Spirit leads Jesus to be on the offense against the enemy. Since Adam and Eve, the enemy has been the aggressor. But Jesus goes out, humbles and weakens himself to prepare for this battle that he is about to take. That battle that we just sang about, that he is our victory, that he's going to fight the battle for us. That's what Jesus is doing right here. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in our next point. But Luke wants us to see that Jesus was intentional about his mission. And the first step in that process was proving himself. One of my commentaries said the activity of the Spirit shows that it was in God's plan that right at the outset, Jesus had face up to the question of what kind of Messiah will he be? In Mark chapter 1 verse 12, where Mark is sharing this story, it even says that Jesus went there not only with intention, but also with great urgency. Look at, at verse 12 in Mark chapter 1. It says, immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. Church, Jesus is on a mission to save his people. God had already put the plan in motion, and upon the leading of the Holy Spirit, Jesus acted quickly. This kind of urgent, intense action is not lost on us. I was thinking about it this way last night, is we move in this way anytime that our children or children in our proximity are in immediate danger. This week, I was leaving the store. I was leaving Super One and headed back out to the fuel center. I'd gone inside to get something. And as I'm walking out, you know how you, you, you leave Walmart, Super One, it doesn't matter. You walk out and immediately you walk into a lane of traffic. And then there's your first parking rows and they go all the way, way back into the back. As I'm walking across that roadway, there's a car in the first parking space. It's a grandmother with a bunch of kids. And I hear her shouting at one of the children, don't get out of the car. And it caught my attention. I looked up and there's a little girl who's got the door open and she just leaps out of the car and towards the traffic. And without even thinking, I don't know these people, but without thinking, I just jumped like this at her. And so when this guy jumps at her, she did like that and she stood still and grandma ran around the car and, and intercepted her before she got in the traffic. But that sense of urgency, that is built into me as a parent. And you don't often, you don't even have to be a parent to have that sense of urgency. When you see someone in danger, you move and you act as quickly as you can to save that person. This is the kind of urgency that Jesus is moving with when he goes into the wilderness. For all of creation, man has been battling with this enemy, with Satan. And this is the moment that, that Jesus has been waiting for where the Holy Spirit says, okay, now is the time. And he moves with urgency to save his people. Jesus is moving quickly to save his children because of the compassion that is in him. He is abiding in the Father and is compelled to go into the wilderness to begin the battle over the souls of his children. And not only does he go into the wilderness, but he spends a tremendous amount of time there preparing and then doing battle. So point number two is that Jesus fasted for 40 days in the wilderness. You've probably already picked up on this or you've heard this before, but this mention of 40 days is a reference to both Israel's time in the wilderness for 40 years and what is seen in Scripture as kind of a standard time for fasting. Last week we read some passages from Exodus to remind us of how easily we forget. Do you all remember that or did you forget already? 
Because I just told you again. Y'all, y'all with me? Okay. What Jesus is doing in the wilderness is going to fulfill what Israel failed to do in the wilderness. God's intention when sending Israel into the wilderness was for them to learn to trust God. But as we have read, they did not. They grumbled against God and Moses and they wished that they were still in slavery in Egypt, yet God was still faithful to them. Let's look at some more of that story. Open your Bibles up to Exodus 16. We're going to look at several passages. I want to I pick up where we left off last week in, in Exodus chapter 16, verse 4, because we read through verse 3. So in, in verse 1 through 3, this is where uh, the Israelites are grumbling before Moses. And this is God's response. And the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. This this way I will test them to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. Okay, so on the heels of Israel's incredibly unappreciative and rude complaints, God tells Moses that he's going to continue to take care of them. God says that he is doing this so that he can test them. But what was the test? What was he testing? What was it that God asked him to do? If we flip back to chapter 15, verse 26, God said, If you will carefully obey the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, pay attention to his commands and keep all his statutes, I will not inflict any illness on you that I inflicted on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. In other places in Exodus, he says, If you will... Be my people and obey my commands. I will be your God. I will be your protector. So God is testing whether or not they are willing to obey. And we know if you've read this story before, we're not going to get into this today in a lot of detail, but the, the, the manna shows up in the morning and God said, only collect as much as, as much as you need for each person in your household. But some of the people went and they started hoarding it up so that they could have some for tomorrow. And do you remember what happened to it? It stank and got full of worms. They failed the test. But God did what he said, and he gave them what they needed. Look at verses 9 through 15 in Exodus chapter 16. So then Moses told Aaron, say to the entire Israelite community, come before the Lord, for he has heard your complaints. As Aaron was speaking, the entire Israelite community, they turned toward the wilderness, and there in a cloud, the Lord's glory appeared. And the Lord spoke to Moses, I have heard the complaints of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will eat bread until you are full. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. So at evening, quail came and covered the camp. In the morning, there was a layer of dew all around the camp. And when the layer of dew evaporated, there were fine flakes on the desert surface, as fine as frost on the ground. And when the Israelites saw it, they asked one another, what is it? Because they didn't know what it was. And Moses told them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. So once again, God does exactly what he says he's going to do. He is going to be faithful to Israel. He delivered them from slavery and he's brought them into this wilderness. And church, I I want, God put this on my heart earlier in the week. And I want you to hear me say this. I want to make sure I have your full attention. We are brought in the wilderness to know God better than we did before. Through some of the testimonies this morning and some of the conversations I've had with you previously, I know that some of us are in a period of wilderness, and that is not by mistake. God sent Israel into the wilderness because they had lived for generations under Egyptian rule and Egyptian religion. He brought them in the wilderness, and if you go look at the map, I didn't put the map up here today, but if you go look at the map, Israel did one of these 
to get to the promised land initially before they did the wandering. And I often have thought, why is it that they took such a long route when you can just go directly across? If God's able to provide water, if he's able to provide food, why this long journey? And I'm convinced, based on what I read in Scripture, is that God did that so that Israel could come to know the Lord their God. That amount of time was intentional. If I remember correctly, I'll have to go back and look, but I'm pretty sure that that journey originally was supposed to take 40 days. Interesting amount of time. God wanted to use this time in the wilderness to reveal himself to the Israelites. So if you feel like you're in a wilderness time, it's because there's something that God wants you to learn about who he is. We know the rest of Israel's story. God reveals himself over and over again, and there was ample opportunity for them to know God and to know his provision. Yet, when they get to the promised land, when they finally make it there, God says, go in and occupy this land that I have given you, past tense, and they see giants and they're scared and they say no. So Jesus enters the wilderness to do what Israel could not do. Jesus was faithful to obey God and to wait for his provision. God had said Jesus uh, had sent him out to fast, to set up the opportunity for this first temptation. Forty days was the standard time for fasting. And we see Moses, in fact, doing that. If you look at Exodus chapter 34, verse 28, when he goes up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, it says, Moses was there with the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. He did not eat food or drink water. He wrote the Ten Commandments, the words of the covenant, on the tables. Okay, so, so what is fasting? Is this like, like someday, sometimes like we'll be like, I'm going to fast. I'm going to fast from caffeine for, for the week, right? Is that what they're talking about? Or I'm going to not eat meat on Fridays for a month? Is that what he's talking about? Let's look. Lexham Dictionary says, um, the gospel record Jesus fasting, perhaps to express reliance on God in times of temptation or spiritual warfare. And he references uh, Matthew's account of this and Luke's account. The Anchor Yale Bible Dictionary says fasting is a deliberate temporary abstination from food for religious reasons. In the biblical material, fasting is a total abstination and is thus to be distinguished from both from permanent food restrictions like those against unclean animals and also from occasional abstination from certain foods like meat on Fridays, a practice adopted by, later, by the later Christian church. The Baker Encyclopedia says his temptation was born out of the context of struggle. Immediately after his baptism, he was cast out into the wilderness by the Spirit to face as the second Adam the temptation of Satan. In the midst of his temptation, he fasted and prayed, quoting from Deuteronomy 8.3 and Psalm 91, 11 and 12. His fasting is associated with dependence upon God. So here's what I want us to understand. When Jesus went out in the wilderness, he did not eat. That's why scripture says at the end of his 40 days, he was what? He was hungry. Jesus fasted to completely weaken his physical body in order to humble himself before God and to rely completely on God. This was the opposite of what we see Israel do in their wilderness. They complained, they grumbled, and they made it about themselves. Jesus obeyed God and relied on him completely. And the result of this reliance is conquering of temptation and ultimately of Satan in the end. God has shown himself to be faithful and will provide all that we need if we will trust him. Look at what God said through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 8 verses 1 through 10. 
It says, carefully follow every command that I'm giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your ancestors. Remember, the Lord your God led you on the entire journey these 40 years in the wilderness so that you might humble you and test you to know what is in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you by letting you go hungry. Then he gave you manna to eat, which you and your ancestors had not known, so that you might learn that man does not live on bread alone, but on the every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out and your feet did not swell these 40 years. Keep in mind that the Lord your God has been disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. So keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with streams, springs, and deep water sources flowing in both valleys and hills. A land of wheat, barley, vines, figs, pomegranates, a land of divine uh, or of olive oil and honey. A land where you'll eat food without storage, where you will lack nothing. A land whose rocks are iron and from whose hills you will mine copper. When you eat and are full, you will bless the Lord your God for the, God, for the good land he has given you. When I was in high school, we used to do this thing called the 30-hour famine. Anybody ever heard of the 30-hour famine? It was a fundraiser for a company called World Vision. And, and what you would do is you would get people to sponsor you for every hour that you fasted. And you'd ta- fast for a total of 30 hours. And so uh, we, we did the thing every year. It was a lot of fun. And I remember one year in particular, we would drink fruit juice. That was all you could have during the 30-hour famine. And I don't know why, but it was a huge draw for teenagers. They loved it. I don't, I don't get it. Um, but I'll never forget one year we were doing it. Um, and I, I have never liked Twinkies ever. They're too sweet. I know that sounds crazy, but I've never liked Twinkies. But during the 30-hour famine, our youth pastor set up a, uh, a scavenger hunt. Not like a scavenger hunt in the building, like one across town. And so you'd go find these clues. And one of the places that we had to go during the 30-hour famine was the Hostess Bakery Shop. Okay? We had not been eating for about 24 hours at this point when I walk into this hostess bakery shop and, and everything looked delicious. And we got done with the famine and we, and we get in the car and my mom's like, all right, I know y'all are hungry. What do you want to eat? And I was like, I want, a, I want a box of Twinkies. She's like, you want a Twinkie? I said, no, I want a box of Twinkies. And that's what I had. I probably got sick afterwards. But I, I want you to think as we hear this description in Deuteronomy about these these men and women and children who have been wandering in the desert for 40 years eating quail and manna. I'm sure the manna tasted wonderful. I don't like leftovers after two days, right? 40 years, you have quail and you have manna. Quail is also very good, probably not every day for 40 years. And, and, and also you're in a desert. And so God is describing this land that has these deep water sources and fields of barley and all these different grains. And they're just salivating like Will looking for a box of Twinkies, right? This is what God is trying to do for Israel. He's trying to give all of this to them. His intention was not for Israel to wander for 40 years. That wandering was the lack, was the result of their lack of faith. God's intention was for Israel to know him. And why did God want him to know him? Because what they didn't understand is that their greatest need was not for their physical needs. Their greatest need is God. God is our greatest need. When the enemy tempts Jesus, he is picking at his weakest spot. The dude is hungry. 
But Jesus was prepared because of this time of fasting and prayer. He's abiding in the Father. And that is what God wanted for mankind all along was for us to know him, to be able to abide in him. And when Israel's in the wilderness, not knowing where their next meal or drink would come from, this was intentional so that they could learn to trust God. It wasn't like today where you're like, man, open up the pantry. I got no groceries. Let me run to the grocery store real quick. I heard they got a new gas station, Super One. I'll check that out while I'm there, right? That's not how it worked. They're in the desert. There ain't no grocery stores. There's no deer wandering around. You can go shoot with your bow and arrow. It's a desert. God put them there intentionally. Think about Adam and Eve in the garden. Not providing for themselves, but enjoying the blessing of God's provision. You look, and I love that our our kids' story this morning was about creation. God creates this perfect garden. He's like, eat from anything you want except for this one tree. That's the imagery that God has for us. We have a need. He's provided everything. But Adam and Eve chose to disobey God. And what was their punishment? Their punishment was getting cast into the wilderness. And now instead of God providing everything, what does Adam have to do? He has to toil and labor in the ground to provide for himself. What God wants Israel to understand, what he wants us to understand, is that he is all we need and will provide all that we need for our physical needs. God uses our natural need for food and for water to, to remind us of our ultimate need for him. This is what the first temptation was all about. Satan wanted to once again take the focus off the real need and put it on something lesser. In response to the temptation to shortcut God's plan, Jesus responds to Satan with a very intentional scripture from Deuteronomy chapter 8 verses 3 that we just read where he says, He humbled you by letting you go hungry. Then he gave you manna to eat, which you and your ancestor had not known, so that you might learn that man does not live on bread alone, but on the every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's not about the manna. It's not about the bread. It's about God. Jesus is defeating Satan's attack by reminding us that our greatest need is not a physical one. Our greatest need is God. You say, but Will, we, we need to nourish our bodies. Of course. And Jesus even addresses when, when asked how we should pray, one of the lines in there is to say, give us each day our daily bread. Where is the provision coming from? Not the bread. It's asking God to provide what we need. That is the role he wants to play in our lives. We need to eat and drink. We need to remember that God is able to provide what every person needs. And side note, sometimes that means it's going to come from you. But remember that the result of Adam and Eve's sin was that Adam had to work the ground to provide for his family. Adam lost God's provision when he disobeyed him. They no longer got to live in the garden. Israel also lost God's intended provision when they disobeyed God and would not go into the promised land. All of those things that are described in that Deuteronomy passage that we just read, they could have had it 40 years ago if they would simply have obeyed God. God had planned for them to go right into the promised land. When we disobey God, we are robbing ourselves of God's best for us. God wants us to know Him. He wants to reveal Himself to us. He is what we need The enemy has the same playbook that he's always had. He's going to try to manipulate God's word and creation to steer us away from God and towards ourselves. 
He wants to take our attention away from God and to put it anywhere else. The enemy's goal is to destroy God's creation and his union with it. We fight that battle the same way that Jesus did. We walk in obedience. We prepare by spending time with God. We remember the promises and the character of God to inform our future decisions. And we abide in him. We do what he says when he says to do it. We let the things that God has done in the past inform our hearts about the character and the promises that he is going to take care of all of our needs. We can learn from our own past failures and the failures of all of those that came before us. Then when we're facing a temptation, we can look at that temptation and say, is the, the giving into this temptation what I need? Will it satisfy me? Maybe for the moment. But is it what I need? No. This first temptation, I want you all to hear me say this, had nothing to do with food. It was about trust. Satan was asking Adam and Eve, Israel, Jesus, and now you and I, do you trust what God says? This is a temptation that all of us face every day. And so the question that we ask, the title of this sermon, is whom do you trust? Is it God or your own ability to provide for yourself? Whom do you trust? Let's pray. Jesus, I'm so thankful that you were able to accomplish what we cannot. God, today, this afternoon, tomorrow morning, the rest of this week, the rest of our lives, when we face temptation, I ask that you would remind us that giving into that temptation is not going to give us what we need. What we need is you, Father. Help us to, to be able to separate in our minds the lies of the enemy and the truth of who you are to distinguish those very clearly so that we can walk in obedience to who you are. God, I ask that you would do that work in our hearts for us. We cannot do it on our own. Father, as we move from this moment in our worship service, God, I ask that your spirit would be present with us. God, that as we close out in song and in prayer to you, Father, I ask that you would do a work in our hearts that we cannot do ourselves. Father, lead us to yourself. Make knowing you and obeying you the highest priority in our lives. Jesus, I ask this for myself and for my brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen.